Hi, and thank you for listening to Dream 10X Radio, where we interview people attempting to live extraordinary lives. Our twofold purpose is to both direct and inspire people bold enough to do the same. Dream 10X. Face your fears. Hey, Dream 10X land. It's your boy, JC. And Dr. Cable. How are y'all doing today? I'm great. How are you doing? (laughs) Good. Today, we are going to do a quick review of the Philip K. Dick book, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? And I don't, after reading the book and and, um, thinking about that title, I still am not quite sure where that came from. But Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? That's the name of the book. Philip K. Dick. Have you ever read any of his books? I have not read any of his books. You've read, you've watched some of his television shows. I have. And I have seen Blade Runner. And, and we've watched Blade Runner too, yeah. Kind of comparing it to this book. It's a great book. Uh, a lot of fun. And watching the movie too, the combination of the two provide a really cool mythology for kind of the intersection of technology and um where the future might might go the future in this book is not a great place to go however but there's a lot of interesting technology that's kind of fun to to you know flying cars and cool cities and stuff like that at least in terms of what uh ridley scott kind of envisioned in the movie didn't it take place in 2021 it took place in 2019. 2019, okay. That, that time frame. So this book, the time frame for this book is about right now, <laughs> interestingly enough. Where's my flying car? And so what happens is... <laughs> that's what everybody's asking. They promised us flying cars, but there's no flying... You know, I was picturing the Jetsons, you know. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're way behind in that in that vision. But mm-hmm. it's it's coming along. There are, People are working on flying cars. But anyway... Um, the the backstory for this is you know world war terminus is what they call it world war three big nuclear holocaust occurred and just wiped out all the life on planet earth except for most of the humans there aren't any animals left to speak of really and there are still a few humans left but um the i think the united nations or whatever the global uh, governing body was at the time was encouraging everybody to leave to to emigrate to mars Mm. and in exchange for agreeing to leave earth to go to mars they were promised an android to help them out uh, to kind of be a you know their automatic automatic helper you know like rosie and the jetsons right 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 right. wouldn't it be nice to have some extra help around the house but not like me or somebody you didn't have to pay somebody would just do whatever you wouldn't that be awesome so that's a good. That was a good carrot that they were offering people to leave Earth, and the stick was the uh, radioactive dust that just covered the entire Earth at the time, and so everything was just radioactive and it was nasty and mm. um, not a great place to live. However, some people just didn't want to leave good old Earth, and I'd probably be one of those people who Me stuck too. around. Yeah. So that's kind of the backstory. Philip K. Dick uh, was a, a UC Berkeley graduate. Um, wrote a, a ton of books, a lot of science fiction. He also wrote Man in the High Castle, which is a really good show, uh, if you haven't seen that. And this book came out in 1968. And so um, it paints a picture of what I guess he thought might be today. And, mm-hmm. and thankfully, it's not. And thankfully, we don't have the technology that he, he says we would have at this point. 
And so we just wanted to talk about kind of the five, top five takeaways that we or I had from reading the book. And then we can we both saw the movie so we can kind of com- compare and contrast the two. Um, the movie Blade Runner was based on this book, by the way, Ridley Scott. And um, Jack Deckard or Rick Deckard, the bounty hunter, was played by Harrison Ford. Mm-hmm. And um, Roy Beatty, the android, was played by Rucker Howard. And then you had Daryl Hannah, who's playing the other hand, android, uh, Pris Stratton. And then there was another android, I can't remember her name. But in the book, there's like six of them. And what these androids did, they, they killed some humans to escape um, their quote-unquote slavery, human slavery that they were under on Mars to come back to Earth so they could be free, ironically. Mm-hmm. And so at the time... Um, the, the, the humans on earth w- had a system of finding these androids because apparently it happened on occasion, finding these androids and terminating them or, or mm. you know, killing them basically because they weren't really alive. They're androids. And so Rick Deckard was one of these bounty hunters whose job was to find these androids and terminate them. And he collected a paycheck based on how many androids he, he would terminate. And so that was kind of the, the story of this whole thing. And so you've got these six androids coming to Earth and then you got the bounty hunter, the bounty hunters, you know, looking for them and trying to terminate them. Mm-hmm. And so one of the interesting things I pulled out of this story, uh, one of them was the whole concept of immigrating to Mars and being uh, encouraged to do so by getting a free Android. Yeah. And so immediately I'm, th- I'm thinking of Elon Musk and how, you know, you got SpaceX and they're, they're building rocket infrastructure to take people, take humans to Mars. We're, we're building this this technologies that we're building a whole ecosystem of technologies rockets and and catch up and and whatever else mm-hmm. to help make life on on mars better and elon musk's company is even coming out with an android so mm-hmm. <laughs> it sounds a lot like what was in the book you know going to mars get a free android kind of thing so i thought that was weird like elon musk as the uh, immigrant ambassador to mars was um kind of a, a weird segue with this book. anyway uh, the second thing that I thought was kind of strange, interesting, slash, you know, whatever, was uh, the mention of cod pieces. So that's something you don't hear or think about much, but cod pieces used to be a, a, a pretty prominent <laughs> piece of clothing. In Red Fair, we do, yeah, it's pretty normal. <laughs> and they came out during the Middle, or the middle Ages, yeah. and we read about cod pieces in... Um, our episode 56, where we talked we talked about the Plantagenets, that book that we read mm-hmm. about how England, you know, the Plantagenet kings kind of helped form England. And, and cod pieces became a, a, a thing of, um, we call it, fashion statement mm-hmm. during the time. And so now in the book, cod pieces are a thing again, except they're made out of lead. And the reason they're made out of lead is to help protect you from all the radiation that's all over the place. So, I don't know, what's old, what's old is new again mm-hmm. sometimes. Please visit our sponsor, Viking Rose, at vikingrose.com. Viking Rose provides free indoor rowing challenges to frustrated Vikings. Challenge yourself by rowing around Cape May Island, or doing the Head of the Charles Regatta, or even rowing from the Canary Islands to Antigua. All you have to do is connect your Concept2 PM5 Bluetooth monitor up to your computer, laptop, or Android device for automatic workout tracking and logging. That's Viking Rose at vikingrose.com. 
real life got wiped out. And so somehow humans survived. I did they talk about how the world ended in this? The war. World War Terminus. It was, world war so III. was it like it was a nuclear a, bomb? It was or? a whole bunch of everybody just shot. They don't even remember who launched all the stuff or okay. why. They don't remember. It's just it always, just, it's it like is. they just woke up one day and everything was gone. Okay. And, and here yeah. they are in this nasty yeah. radioactive environment. Okay. And, 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 but there are a few animals, real animals around and only the really wealthy people can ha mm. actually own real animals. Like, like Rick Deckard's neighbor owns a real horse and I think they have it up. I, it's hard to envision what actually they're talking about in the book. There's some weird things, but, um, they live in an apartment and I, I think his, his, his neighbor has a horse up on on the roof of this apartment mm. and Poor horse. <laughs> and rick has a has an electric sheep he mm. can't afford a real animal so he has an electric sheep that's one of the things that, that didn't come out in the movie is this whole concept of you know there aren't any real animals and, yeah and the real animals are coveted and real life is coveted because it just doesn't exist anymore mm. But the, the reality is if all of these animals didn't exist anymore, there would not be the interdependent fabric of life to support humans. Yeah, that's true. If humans would not exist. So this book may you know, help paint a picture of what could be in the future. However, I don't think any life would exist on Earth at, you know, yeah. if, if we had that kind of a war that wiped out all animals, you know, humans wouldn't exist either. So I just thought that was really creative way of, of talking about, uh, you know, this type of uh, post-apocalyptic future in that you, we, we wanted animals, we wanted life so much that we created electric animals to help fill that void in our, in our lives. Mm -hmm. And so John Isidore, who uh, in the book, was, who in the movie was J.F. Sebastian, who was the bioengineer, but in the book, he just works for a vet. He's kind of like a, a vet tech assistant. And uh, the vet tech is, they, they only deal with electric animals. And so he just helps like collect electric, broken electric animals and brings them to the shop and they try to fix them mm. and stuff. But in real life, um, J.F. Sebastian is a bioengineer who like creates all these weird creatures that live in his apartment. So mm -hmm. in the movie, he's a little bit smarter, but in the book, he's not a very smart guy. Okay. All that to say is that, you know, animals are life. Life mm -hmm. is a really important thing, which takes me to another point. Why would they, why would humans want to kill the androids when they came to earth? They only live four years, right? You said they only live four years, so they're gonna die anyway. <clears throat> they're gonna die anyway. Um, so I, that was one of my questions. Unless it's for what, parts, it could be for parts. Well, uh, I I think it was more out of fear. Uh, uh, my, my guess is out of fear. They don't really say why the need to kill the androids huh. and like Cindy said they they die in four years because they the engineers who built them couldn't get the cell division right like we talked about with um in the previous podcasts you know becoming batman and chasing captain america mm -hmm. with paul's air books that cell our cells have a hayflick limit where they can divide up to 50 to 60 times throughout our lifespan and that cell division is what you know we, we replace old and dying cells with new cells and that's what allows us to have the longevity that we do. 
And then when we when we reach that Hayflick limit, we can't re- repair our bodies anymore, and, and we eventually die. Well, the androids, they, the engineers couldn't get that cell division right, mm. and so they, that's why they die after four years. So yeah, so why did they kill them? And I think the reason they needed to kill them is because, or terminate them, was because of how well they um, mimicked hu- humans. And, and if they were able to mimic humans so much, they could also replace them. And in the book, they, the androids took over a police station. They created their, a fake police station. Mm. And Rick Deckard was part of the police force as a bounty hunter. And uh, he, got, he got put in, put in prison by an android in this fake thing, oh, wow. this, this fake police station. And he was all confused because he'd never heard of this police station, and he was part of the police force, but he'd never seen any of these police. Yeah. So they were create. They could create. They it was kind of a foreshadowing, I guess, that they could create a, like a parallel human environment that would totally fake out other humans, yeah. and they wouldn't know it was fake. And it, that, along with life, was so precious. Real biological life was so precious to everyone. I think they just felt the need that you know we, we don't want these anymore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we want kind of a kind of a kind of a luddite sensibility. Let's get mm-hmm. rid of this technology in favor of the real biology. I, that was the only thing I could come up mm-hmm. with. I, but yeah, so well, why kill these guys? So I, I think um, that was one of the reasons. Um, as opposed to on Mars, they were actually kind of your slave. They would mm-hmm. help you do stuff. But on Earth, we had to get rid of. <laughs> Point was, or other interesting takeaway was the Voight Kampf test, which was a test administered by the bounty hunter to the androids mm-hmm. to try to figure out whether or not this android that was in front of them was a real human or a machine. Mm. And the way it worked was it would kind of measure biometric responses to certain types of questions mm. uh, designed to emote some kind of emphatic response in the android. Or, or human. So humans would typically have a more emphatic response to certain type of questions. Mm-hmm. Empathy. Emp- emphatic. I think that's the right word. Yeah. Um, whereas androids would not. They would not have that response. And so this new model that came out of the Nexus, the uh, Rosen Corporation, or uh, in, in the book it's called the Rosen Corporation. In the movie it's the Tyrell Corporation. But uh, these guys came out with a new android model called the Nexus 6. And they were even even more uh, astute at mimicking humans. And so it was harder and harder to tell whether or not, you know, an android was a human Mm -hmm. or not. And so this Voight-Kampf test was, you know. Anyway, the test is kind of uh, similar to the Turing test. Alan Turing Mm -hmm. was a mathematician in the 50s who who famously came out with the Turing test, which was a way to interact with a computer or uh, something using text over a network and if you couldn't tell that the thing that you were interacting with over the network was a human or not then uh, and it was a machine then that would prove that it was an intelligent machine wow that's crazy so we're we've already and and there are other tests as well so we're we're already trying to we have for decades been trying to figure out a way to measure uh, and kind of test whether or not a machine is intelligent or not. Mm-hmm. So um, this is thinking of how this book came out in the 60s, 68-ish, something like that. Um, it was very you know, forward thinking in that regard that this, this is going to be a big thing. And I, I think that test is, is uh, probably very 
important idea moving forward. How are we going to vet whether or not we're, we're interacting with a real human or a machine? Mm-hmm. It's true. Yeah. And, and with ChatGPT again and, or, or, and, and other AI technologies, that, that, uh, that testing is becoming more and more prominent. How do we tell if writing is, was written by a computer, if it was written by a student? How do we tell if you know, this art was created the, by a human? The ChatGPT, like for example, is only as smart as the input that it's receiving. So if you're having a conversation with it and you're teaching it wrong information, how can it really validate and verify? So then it spits the wrong information back to other people and then that becomes belief. So does that become the new reality? Well, if it's spitting out wrong information and you can tell it, you, a human can can verify that. Oh, that's bad information. It's a bad machine. It's a mm. bad machine. It's not a human. It's it's easy to tell there. So, um, the other weird thing is if if it's so precise that it's never wrong, then that's a, another way of telling that mm. it's a machine because humans are. Humans are fallible. We're always wrong. We're, well, we always stumble on that's a, a That's thing, a so. disconnect right there. So if we're saying that the machine is giving false information and therefore we know it's a machine, yet humans are fallible, so it's giving right, false right, information. Right, right. Then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I, that's a good point. I don't know, yeah. uh, that's a good point. <laughs> yeah. Uh, hmm. Uh, so Voight Comp, and then uh, that was all five of my. <laughs> <laughs> all right. That was all five of my. And I killed the conversation. <laughs> That's how I roll. <laughs> so um, this book was was really good. Uh, I liked reading some science fiction for a change instead of a business book, and it made me think a little bit about the intersection of technology and war and the future and. It's not all good. It doesn't seem like it's all that cracked up to be sometimes. And sometimes I wonder if we really need all this technology because look at what people are dreaming what the future could be. And mm-hmm. uh, I don't know. I it, It's an interesting fantasy book, but I don't want it to become reality. I don't want us to go there. So it, it always makes me... Books like this always make me think of like... Uh, I, I really want to read a better narrative of what the future could be. Who's got a better narrative? Can anybody recommend a science fiction mm-hmm. book that has a great narrative for what the future could be? Mm-hmm. seems like all the sci-fi technology movies and books about the future are, have such a negative connotation. We're always fighting the machines and mm-hmm. we you know, almost lose and almost get wiped out and there's a world war and all that like where's the good narrative where's the positive narrative yeah. that people can think about well, star wars a little bit but even those movies are, are fighting darth vader there's always the yeah. the myth there's always you the know, fighting there's the and star Joe trek Campbell. too like star trek at least has like one united front on earth at least and then yeah um so on Earth, at least, it's a positive culture. Star Trek is a pretty mostly positive sci- yeah. sci-fi genre. That I, yeah. I, it was a lot of fun to watch. I mean, they always came up against bad guys. And that's sure, why, but that's when they're exploring the universe. At least yeah. on Earth, that's a positive space. And even that was fun, like yeah. Rathacon and oh, stuff yeah. like that. Yeah. But anyway, uh, yeah, this future, was this post-apocalyptic future is just, it's too much. I don't want it. I don't, yep. I don't want nuclear war, Holocaust, or anything yeah. like that. So back to the business books. I also finished reading The Hard Thing About Hard Things, and this was a great um, book about how to become a CEO. Ooh. And we'll read this. Well, we'll talk a little bit about this in the next episode. Looking forward to that. And then finally, I can't remember how I stumbled on this book or uh, learned about Frank Hasenfrotz, but this book is 
fantastic. And I love reading about his story. And I was sad to learn that he just passed away. But what a great story What uh, about Linamar up in Canada. And looking forward to talking more about this book as well in the future. Awesome. Finally, wanted to talk about our... Our uh, software as a service for indoor rowers, Frustrated Vikings, vikingrows.com. We are selling hoodies, and this is a, one of the hoodies that we have in our store. And vikingrows.com. And tank tops. Yep. Yep. Mm -hmm. But here, here's a real life example, and I'm wearing it as well. It's lightweight. It. I like it. Vikingrows.com yeah. slash store. And I think you'll like them. They're, they're a little bit light, but they're yeah. cool. I yeah, like, I like I it. It's a good hair. like fall, spring jacket yeah yeah so thanks for watching our episode 58 and we will talk to you next time over now bye